is from 2 Peter 2, 10b through 14. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as they wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. That word of encouragement is brought to you by (laughs) Hallmark. And uh, so, yes, that's our passage today. Let there be light. And there was light. Um, so that's our passage today, and uh, it, it, it sounds super brutal. Um, it's actually more than anything poetic. He's using a lot of ancient Greek language, and when you get to stuff like this, you know, sometimes scriptures are very straightforward, and it says, hey, here's what's up, and you're like, oh, that makes perfect sense, and then other times this happens, and you say, I have literally no idea where to start with this, and no idea what's going on. So uh, when you dive into this, and you study it, and you pull out all the individual words like we're going to do this morning... You start to see what Peter is talking about. He is describing um, how he sees the human mind. Um, he is describing the path uh, towards becoming a person that is just off track. And he's describing how it happens, what it looks like, how you get there, and where it ends. And so tonight we're going to, uh, tonight, this evening, now, here... Um, we are going to dive into all of this and, and find out exactly what he means, what he's talking about. Um, and there's no way we would have time to pull out everything, but I'm going to pull out the parts that, that um, sort of paint a good picture, if you will. So I'll, I'll try to be clear and concise and to make some of this make sense for you. But first, I'm going to pray that I'll be actually be able to do that. So let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are for how you're revealing yourself to us, to me, um, to the world around us at large. And thank you for drawing us in. I ask that you would continue to reveal yourself to us. Make yourself more known. Um, let us understand who we are and the part that we are playing in your, in your big plan. Um, remind us what we are here for. Remind us how we are designed and built and uh, where we can go astray but also how things can go really good and how we can be used for the redemption of, of your world. Show us things we need to, to, uh, to see. Speak to us things we need to hear and uh, give us a piece of the puzzle that we've been missing to sort of make the whole thing look complete. We love you. In your name, amen. Okay, so we're going to start in 10b, meaning the second half of verse 10. It says this, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Okay, so in order to understand this passage, we are going to sort of create an imaginary line um, right after the words bold and willful, and we're going to move those off to the left, and then we're going to take, they blaspheme the glorious ones, and we're going to move those off to the right, and 
we're going to know, and while they do this, they're not afraid. Last week, we talked a little bit about the fear of the Lord. Okay, so that's just going to sort of going to be a side point. But we're going to di- divide this in half to get the best possible picture of what he is describing here. So what he's describing here, um, in order to find out, really, for real, we have, to, we have to look at the words that he uses. He uses the word bold. It's the word tomates. Uh, it means daring. Uh, if somebody's doing something daring, they're doing something out of the ordinary that normal people don't do. When you do daring things all the time, if that becomes a normalcy, you die at an early age um, and you end up on the front page of like the GoPro YouTube channel Um, because you're not doing something that is normal. You're doing something daring and out of the ordinary. Uh, And so he is describing an attribute of somebody that's, that's doing something out of the ordinary. Okay, so the second word we have here is the willful. That word, it's, it's adates, and there's, there's, there's two root words here. The first word is auto, the second one is hadon. Auto means self, hadon means pleasing. Um, he's describing somebody who is um, daring in the, in the fact that he is doing things which are all about themselves, and they're self-pleasing. So it's describing somebody that is so self-centered and is so absent-minded of community and the people around them and empathy and love and generally the things that God showers upon us that they have put all that out of their mind and they're only thinking about what do I want right now and what do I got to do to get it? Um, bold and willful. When you hear me say it the rest of this morning, the words bold and willful, you're picturing, you're picturing um, somebody who's done something that you have maybe turned on the news and... They tell you what happened today and your jaw drops and you're shocked that anyone, any human being could behave like that. That's what this is, bold and willful. Um, and then we have the second half. So we're going to move that to the left and then we have the second half here. We're going to move to the right. Um, they blaspheme the glorious ones. Blaspheme means they reject. Uh, and then the glorious ones, this is, um, it's the word doxa. It's, it's, the, it's where we get our word doxology, meaning speaking of, of holy, higher, enlightened sort of uh, divine things. Um, it is the word that Peter used in his first letter to this church to speak of the things of God. It has to do with light. Um, and so it's holiness in, in, in broader language. It's the things of God. So we're describing somebody here in, in the second half of verse 10 that does whatever they want, whenever they want to, so much so that it's shocking to the normal person because it's not normal to us to behave like this because we're at least somewhat tapped into the spiritual side of things. And not only that, not only are they rejecting sort of their animal side, they are, I mean, they're embracing their animal side, they are rejecting the spiritual side. So any thought to anything spiritual or communal has been pushed away and everything that has to do with what I want, I take, has been pulled in. And he follows this up by saying, but these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct. So now he's, he's saying that's what they are. It, they've embraced the animal side. They've pushed away the spiritual side. Um, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. So that's, that's like a fox or something to eat. Um, they, they looked, that's why it exists for us to eat. That's how they viewed it. Um, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. Um, will also be destroyed in their destruction. So they're blaspheme, again, the word is rejecting. They're rejecting things about which they know nothing about. They know nothing about the spiritual side and they're rejecting all of it. Um, 
and, and they're ignorant of these things, and they would also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. So what, what it's saying here is they're causing destruction in everything that they do because they are behaving like animals, um, and they're bringing pain and hurt to the people around them and shocking them with, with the actions that they are taking. And eventually, the actions are so destructive that they end up destroying themselves in the process. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrong. So they, they deal out so much wrong that they themselves become victims of their wrong or people like them's wrong, if you will. Um, are you with me? Are you following? It's, it's not this... Um, when you really get into the, 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 the language, it's not some lofty thing. He's describing in beautiful language... Um, it even, if you read it in the Greek, a lot of it even rhymes. He's describing in a very poetic way uh, someone who has gone down this path of ultimate destruction and, and just wants pleasure so bad that even in seeking the pleasure that they want, um, eventually they are destroyed by it and they actually lose the very thing that they wanted. So they never actually attain what they were going for and they keep striving and they destroy themselves and lose what the whole thing was about. Um, so there is this uh, economic sort of law principle. It's called the law of diminishing returns. It's a relatively simple idea. It, um, <laughs> it, it has to do with, um, it has to do with uh, how to build a company. It has to do with how every, every company is, has an optimal um, level at which they operate, and, and to get to that level, you need to add the right person, the right equipment, the right product, the right leadership. There is a thing you're looking for, and when you get that thing in place, you're going to work at your optimum place. Now, let me, let me define, let me define the, 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 the law of diminishing returns. So the law of diminishing returns states, increasing any factor of production beyond its optimum results in declining marginal returns in output. Eventually, returns will go negative, so that each added increment of input actually makes us worse off. Um, so I think the best way that, to help us all understand this is by talking about coffee. Um, <laughs> if I'm going to my desk and uh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to write something and I want it to be thoughtful, I want my brain to be working at the best level, oftentimes I need a cup of coffee or a cup of, cup of espresso or something. Um, and when I drink this, as I stand at my desk and I start typing, I, I, my mind, the parts of my mind that are um, sort of influenced by the chemicals of coffee going into me, they're, they're woken up, I get to a state of of awareness and I'm awake and I can think and I can remember things I've studied and I type and it's good. Um, and that's how I work at the optimal place. So sometimes you think, man, that coffee was so good and I'm so awake. I bet if I had a second cup of coffee, I'd be more awake and I'd work faster. And so I add a second cup of coffee and I sure do work faster. But what happens is my work begins to diminish because I get a little shaky and my brain isn't quite functioning right where it should. And then for some reason I think, well, man, like, maybe I should try a third cup of coffee. <laughs> and you get a third cup of coffee. And what happens is you lose all sense of focus. And you're kind of jumpy. And you start hearing things that aren't really there. And you just can't work. And so it actually gives you negative returns. And so the first cup of coffee, this is the perfect, to me, the perfect definition of, of, what is it called? I forget already. Too much coffee. The law of diminishing returns. 
the first cup of coffee, my returns are climbing and they're great. Yes, yeah, that was a good choice. Let's add a second. Not so good. It's, it's, it's okay though. We're still cruising. The third actually brings me into the negative returns. Okay. We all understand the law of diminishing returns. Um, this is not just an economic idea. This is a philosophical idea. This is a spiritual idea. This can be applied across the board. Um, in Genesis chapter 49, when we were talking about um, the sons of Israel receiving their blessing, there's this scene in the, in the passage where they're around the deathbed of their father, and they're, they're in, in, in ancient Jewish fashion, he is about to die, and he's proclaiming a blessing upon each of them, and, and speaking a word about what they need, how their future will be, what God is going to do for them, and what he sees in them based upon what he saw from them growing up. And he looks at a few of them, and he tells them, you're going to receive this, and it's going to be exactly what you need for you to become what God wants you to become. And then, uh, he, so it's a good thing. He says, you're going to receive this. And then he looks at some of the other sons, and he says, hey, um, you are going to actually have things taken from you. It's sort of this negative. Um, and he says, and when you receive this, when you lose these things and these attributes and these parts of you, then you will be prepared to be what God wants you to be and, and do what God wants you to do. And then there's a few more sons that he looks at and he says, um, you are actually going to receive negative things. You're going to, you're not going to lose, you're going to, you're going to receive pain. And this pain is going to mold you and it's going to change you. It's going to make you into what you need to be. And you have to walk through that. And so there is this place um, that they need to come to and God's going to do that to them. And this is how he's describing it. And should they add too much to it? Uh, some of them have already added too much and some need to be taken away. Some of them don't have enough and more will be given. And some of them haven't had enough sort of the, the, the gritty, the sandpaper, the rub of, of just pain against to, to make them stronger and build up those sort of calluses in their soul that they need to become what they need to become. Um, and so we talked about that and the other, the other idea we talked about in, in, in uh, this discussion of of how we best function is I use the description of somebody lost in the woods in the cold winter and they're miserable and they're sad and and you ask well why are they sad well because they're freezing they don't have a coat and so this one simple thing that they're missing uh, renders them sad and meaningless and dying and just hopeless and so um, there's something that they need to continue their journey of where they're going it's a coat and if they receive this coat the law takes its, takes its sort of its action and, and, and their fulfillment goes up and they become happy. They have exactly what they need. And now they can continue their journey in joy. They are happy because they received this coat. And so in typical good American form, we would think, well, if one coat made me that happy, what would 10 coats do? I'd be 10 times as happy, wouldn't I? And so you get 10 coats and now you carry the burden of traveling with 10 coats. And you can still keep moving. You're probably a little warmer too, but you're no happier than you were. Uh, it's actually the return is diminished. And, and then in even more typical American fashion, we think, well, if, if one coat makes me this happy, I bet a thousand coats would make me a thousand times happier. And so poof, a thousand coats drop out of the sky and, and you're covered in coats. And now you can't even go where you need to go because you have all these coats. In order to go where you need to go, you need to leave them and abandon them. Um, the law of diminishing returns is... 
It actually affects every aspect of our life. And what Peter is describing is someone who is discontent with what they have because they're living by the flesh and they think there's got to be something more that I need. And so they strive for it and they try to get it. And it usually has to do um, with some physical urge that they have. Maybe the person is lonely. Maybe they want um, connection. They, they need a connection with someone. And instead of, instead of tapping into the spirit, and, and we have a God who, who infinitely knows you and wants to connect with you on so many levels and bring you into his church to meet all the rest of their needs for connection and to give you right relationships um, that, that were built to meet every aspect of, of need, for, to, to meet those needs that you have. But instead, maybe you chase after the simple thing that your flesh is offering, promiscuity, and so you're lonely and you're disconnected and so you search for this, these things to be fixed through promiscuity and, and sleeping with lots of people and in the end what you find is that you're even more lonely and you're more disconnected um, than you ever were before and not only that, now you're actually hopeless. You end up being far worse off than you were and a piece of you is, is, is broken and it's missing because you have followed the flesh. Um, it's the person who um, tries to medicate with um, alcohol and drunkenness and they, um, they, they're, maybe they're just tense, they just need to relax and so they try to forget the problems that they have um, by intaking a lot of alcohol and the problem with that is the more you do that the less it actually affects your mind and you need more alcohol to get to the same place of forgetfulness again and this grows and grows and grows and so originally what you wanted was to forget your problems but what you have now is you've lost your job and your family and your children and your health and, 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 and now you have far more problems than you ever had and the one thing you wanted you still don't have the law of diminishing returns does its work um, and, and then there's, there's substance abuse in general there are pain medications that we have created as human beings to give you rest so that you can heal and as you abuse them the same thing happens and you need more and more to feel what you want to feel and you come to a place where you have no rest because you constantly need more to even rest and Instead of being healed, your body is destroyed. And so this is how it works. This is how the human mind works. This is how it is wired to work. Um, even simple things like gossip. You gossip, why? Why do you gossip? Well, because you want your image to look better in the eyes of others. But when it's run its course, you come to the end and everyone knows everything that you said and that is really true about you and true about other people. And your image is diminished in the eyes of everyone else. And you lose even the joy in your identity that you had. And so this is exactly how sin works. Sin oftentimes even takes good things that were, that were just given to us as gifts of, of joy and happiness to bless our lives. And we want more and more and more and more. And, and then we ruin even what we have. And so this is not just an economic thing. It's not just a spiritual thing. It's also even a global thing. Um, Let's talk about this on the societal level. Um, America has never spent more on defense, on military equipment than it does right now. And through the history of the world, no country has spent more than America spent in the last five years on, on defending ourselves. But every survey that is done, survey after survey after survey, describes Americans as feeling less and less safe. And the more we spend, it seems the less safe we feel. 
and so it's not working. And so it's possible that our safety does not come and our sense of security does not come from anything in the flesh. Um, all statistics right now point to the, the, the fact that our economy is growing rapidly. Um, but every survey that is done, survey after survey, again, um, describes the vast majority of people saying that they are no better off now than they were a decade ago. And more and more people are actually starting to think that they are actually losing ground. Because somehow uh, we think that our happiness and the things that we need are these particular things when they are not at all rooted in the spirit and we are becoming ignorant of the spirit that we actually need. And the fact is, you have an optimum place that we were created to thrive in and it probably doesn't involve any of those things. You probably already have everything that you need. Um... And so what he's describing is the fact that physical pleasure, striving after physical pleasure all by itself leads to the removal of more and more pleasure. And so there is this spiritual side that we should be tapping into that we're not. Let's look at verse 14. He says, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. So this is a really interesting phrase. And, and if you read this literally and, and try to picture it, it's really weird. They have eyes full of adultery. Doesn't make any sense. Um, and you try to picture, like, so what is, this, what is this even talking about? Well, when you read a lot of scholars, especially N.T. Wright says that if you rearrange this and you describe, the, the, the most accurate way to describe this, um, this passage uh, is like this. In his eyes, every woman is his adulteress. And so this is describing a man that has dwelled on lust and, and has spent time lusting after women so often that all he sees when he looks around is women that are there to sleep with him and he just simply needs to find the right thing to say to make it happen. And so they catcall every woman that walks by. And they pull up at the stoplight and they try to peek in the window. And they're honking their horn to try, because they're desperate because they've come to the place where their mind is hardwired to look at every single woman as that woman is here for my sexual pleasure and gratification. What can I do to get her to sleep with me? And we have now trained an entire generation of men to think like this. And then we say, that's just how men are. No, not what Peter says. We'll see what Peter says in just a moment. But this is, this is one aspect of it. That when a man lets his mind run wild like this... Um, it turns into exactly what he sees. And, and this is just one picture of it. There's, this works on, on all kinds of levels. Someone who is just generally negative all the time, they look at everything as negative, negative, negative. You have conversations with them, they're like, oh, my world's falling in, and this happened, and this happened. And all they, when you ask them how they're doing, all they describe is negative things. They become, their eyes become full of a world that is out to get them and that is negative. When you talk, the more you spend time um, thinking about the attributes of subcultures that you know or, or other people groups or other races or other um, genders or other um, uh, religious groups. You think about their negative aspects all the time and that's all you think about. You begin to fill your eyes and your mind to the point where when you look around, all you see is everyone else is so awful and I am good. And now you reject spending any time getting involved or loving or being around a certain type of person. I would argue this is how we got where we are with the refugee crisis. 
We spend so much time thinking negatively about all these people instead of looking at the fact that they're made in the image of God and that this is what they need. is spiritual people connecting with them spiritually on this level that is far beyond aid. It starts there and it grows. And so this is what happens to us. Um, the secret porn addict begins to see in his eyes, well, this is what sex is, and ends up even ruining his own sex life with a spouse. This is what happens over and over and over. This is how the human mind works. And here's how Peter actually describes it coming about. He says, they entice unsteady souls, and they have hearts trained in greed. So let's look at a few words here. The word greed is a word we looked at a couple weeks ago. It's the word pleonexia. It means ambition for things you have no right to have. This is you pondering what it would be like to have this other person's spouse, what it would be like to have their job, their life, their children, what it would be like to not have what you have and to have what they have. Um, And you sit and you ponder this. And Paul says, when you do this, you're training your mind. And the word train is this word gymnazo. It's where we get our word gymnasium. It means it's a space where you're exercising. So Peter describes your mind as a place where you are exercising what you are becoming. And the more you take part in these kinds of thoughts, the more you become this type of person. And so the more you sit and ponder pleonexia, the more you sit and ponder, what if they were my spouse? You have no right to that. You have no right to even imagine that. What if that was my life? What if that was my job? What if that was my family? And the more you ponder what it would be like to have things you have no right to have, the more you become discontent with what you have. And if you follow this path, it sets you on a trajectory to where you are exercising this in your mind more and more and more, and you start to become somebody that in the end is bold and willful. They are rejecting of spiritual things, and all they can strive for is physical things. And this is a terrifying place because what, what Peter is describing here is false teachers. Those, the, the kind of people that this is what they talk about, and they end up bringing other people with them away from God. He says, they entice unsteady souls. As you do this, as you take part in this and you talk about it more and more and more, other people start thinking the same way and this thing is contagious and it starts to snowball and you are leading people away. And and Paul says, when you get to this point, you're like a cursed children. You have nothing but suffering ahead of you because you cannot focus on what you need to focus on. And nothing that you are striving after will ever give you any of the returns that you desire because it is not the way you were designed to live. And so, oops, I hit a button there. Um, And so he's talking about the mind, and he's saying what needs to be changed is not your external behavior. This is, the Christian life is not about external behavior. Maybe you haven't spent enough time um, hearing this. Maybe you haven't spent enough time around um, Christians who, who, who are telling you what the scriptures say about this, but Christianity is not about behavior. It has nothing to do with behavior. It has to do with your heart, your soul, and your mind. It has to do with, with uh, a cleansing the inside. Religion's about behavior. That's what was going on in the first century temple. People were bathing the outside of their bodies in, in the mikvah to go in and be close to God. And that's how they believed this happened. And then 
John the Baptist stands by the river and he says, this is not going to work. You need to repent. You need to change your mind. You need, to, you need to tap into something completely different. The spirit of God. You need to connect with God inside and, and, and be transformed from the inside and then the outside will be clean. Jesus, uh, he's talking to the Pharisees one time and he's looking at them and they're ritually cleaning their cups uh, before they sit down to eat so that they can obey every single letter of the law because to them it's about external behavior. It's, it's how you dress. It's, it's, how you, it's the things that you eat. It's how your cup is cleaned. And he notices that they never clean the inside of the cup because nobody can see the inside. He sees this as a perfect metaphor for exactly what's going on with them. And he says, you fools, if you would clean the inside of the cup, the outside would just be clean. If that's, that's who you need to focus on the inside. And then you have Paul who writes to the... the the church in Rome, and he rested him, and he says, let God transform you into a person by changing the way that you think. You need to become a new person, and the way this works is not by just changing your actions, because your actions come from your mind. And so there's tons of stuff in the scriptures about tons of things that we never do communally. How often do you fast? and you pray and you study and you meditate on the scriptures how often do you spend time sitting and picking up the train that has gone off course and putting it back on the track because every day 30 times a day it's going off course but the problem is that most people who claim to be followers of Jesus don't do anything to nourish the mind and to sit and say you know what even if it's just for five minutes I'm going to pick this thing up and put it back where it needs to be and the more you practice this, the more it, your mind is a gymnasium. You are working out your mind. You are slowly building up, very slowly, these muscles that are changing the kind of person you would be. And if you can get the inside of the cup clean, the outside will come clean and it will change you. And if you spend a few minutes every day just being thankful, you will become a thankful person. If you spend a few minutes a day just, I want to encourage somebody, say something encouraging to somebody, you're going to become a person that is encouraging. And, and it's going to have returns. It's going to grow. Um, if you become a person who is um, just putting out of your mind regularly um, what the world is telling you about the things that you need that will make you happy, and you say, um, I have everything I need to be fully content. There's nothing I need to accomplish. There's nothing I need to change. God is here with me. I don't need to get up and physically do anything and I will sit here and I will love God. And the more you do this, the more you will begin to love God. The more you will be content with your life and the more you will become a person um, who is more like Jesus. Even Jesus himself regularly took times to go into the hills and to contemplate his father and to speak to his father. This isn't about learning. Oftentimes we open the Bible and it's like, I gotta learn something, I gotta learn something. Well, learning something is great, but it's not always about learning something. Oftentimes it's just about just simply making the effort and working out your brain, even if it's for five or 10 minutes to become the person you need to become because the rest of the day, you're being bombarded with all of these thoughts that go the exact opposite direction. So there's gotta be something that you're doing to go the other way. But most of us just don't. Um... So when I was uh, younger, we lived, in, we lived in Los Angeles, and there's a, out in the middle of the desert, outside of Los Angeles, there's a small, tiny town, I think it was called Holtville, really just in the middle of nowhere, um, and there was a family we used to go visit there, friends of my parents, um, who supported my dad, who's a missionary on the West Coast, and, and, and we'd go see them, and they had this massive farm in the middle of the desert, it was like an oasis, it was very green, and they had all kinds of animals, and they had two pens, one for sheep and one for goats, and they were separated. And 
I always wondered when I was a kid, why don't they just have the same pen? Why aren't sheep and goats together? I mean, I always thought they were kind of the same animal, except one had horns and straight hair and the other had curly hair. But other than that, I, there's not a lot of huge difference in sheep and goats. I mean, to me, maybe I'm just completely ignorant of the whole thing, but sheep and goats, kind of the same. Um, and so growing up, this was kind of the way I thought. And then one day, um, I'm reading this. Oh, wait, I'm, I'm going to scoot past this here. I messed it all up. And so one day, one day I'm, reading, I'm reading Matthew, the book of Matthew, and I see this. Um, it's Jesus talking, and he says, and he will separate the people as a shepherd, a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. I was like, yeah, see? What is with this? <laughs> Why are shepherd, shepherds separating sheep from goats? What's, what's, all this, what's all this talk about goats? And so I was thinking about this, and I couldn't figure it out. And then one day, I'm actually watching TV, and this, this shepherd in the Middle East is talking about what it's like being a herdsman. And he says, we take the sheep and the goats out separate. And I'm like, there it is again. And he just says, well, the reason we actually take them out. And he starts talking about the reason they do this. And I was, man, I was glued for whatever reason. This is blowing my mind. I'm like, I have to know. My whole life, I've wondered this. And he says, well, if you take them all and you put them all together and you take them into the valley, um, the sheep and the goats... Uh, and then you kind of go up on the hillside and you watch for a couple of hours. It won't take long. You'll, you'll, the sheep will keep their heads down and they're eating and they're just as content as can be. And when you call them, they come. But if you don't bother them, they're just going to sit there and they're not going to go far. They're just going to eat. But the goats, they look up and they want more. And they look, well, I mean, I got some grass here, but what's over that hill? I bet there's some female goats at least. Um, maybe there's some water. Maybe there's some thicker grass. And the goats just want something different. And so the goats tend to wander and they climb and they go dangerous places they ought not to go. And he says, if you watch for about an hour or so, you will watch the goats. Even if there's just four of them, they will tear apart an entire herd of sheep and scatter them in all kinds of directions in the wilderness, all over the desert, and you'll never find them all again. And that is why you separate sheep from the goats, in case you were wondering. Now, so why does Jesus use this? Um, There's tons of times in scriptures when, when... Apostles are writing to churches and they tell them, hey, some of this is going on among you. People are living this way. Um, they're going to be pulled out of the church. They have to go. And there's a lot of reason for this. Uh, there's, over the years, um, I've, I've watched tons of people fall into sin and they're no longer with us. But the fact is, we've never kicked any of them out. We've never asked any of them to leave. God has a way of separating the sheep from the goats. Um, Because the goats want more. They want something different than what they have. They think, sure, this is great. And and, and the shepherd is great um, and all. But there's, there's stuff out there that I want. And they follow it. And God always separates them from the sheep. And in the end, God says, you can have what you want. If you don't want this, you can you can go. And if you follow Jesus, I mean, and Jesus says, my sheep, they hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And when I walk, they follow. Um, the goats are the ones who don't care about the voice of Christ, the voice of the shepherd. And, and they're actually ignorant of the things that they should know. That the farther you wander away from the shepherd, the farther you wander away from everything that you need. The shepherd is your protection. He's your nourisher. He knows exactly where you should go at different times of the day to get food. 
He can protect you from the dangers that are out there. He knows. There's no need to want more. Your cup runneth over here. When, when, when the scriptures say in Psalm 23, my cup runneth over, the actual Hebrew description there is a trough that is so full of food that it's spilling over onto the ground. He's like, and it's right there, but the goat will always just walk away. You've got to fence him in, you've got to separate him. And so I, I, I can't say that I, that I know what all, all of you are going through. I know what some of you are going through. And I know that um, some people are being led away by other people. I know that some people are terrified of where other people are going, of where this is all heading. Um, you don't need to be afraid. We have a God who is in control, who is guiding, who is leading, who in the end will set everything to right the way it needs to be. And we can hear his voice, and we can stay with him, and we can trust that it's okay. Um, but there's some things we need to do. We need to pay attention to our mindset. We need to make sure that we understand that our mind is a gymnasium and that we will become what goes on in there. And so maybe there's some things you're watching you shouldn't. Maybe there's some things that, that you're, you're saying that you shouldn't be saying. Maybe there's some thoughts you're thinking, some, some, uh, some propaganda you're reading. Uh, maybe it's bad for you, and maybe it's leading you down a place where it will eventually be all you can think about, and, and it's going to destroy even the safety and security that you have, or even the love that you have, or even the marriage that you have, or the sex life that you have. It's going to destroy that because like a goat, you're wanting more, and you're suppressing the Spirit of God. And so Peter has that warning for us. The flesh kills. It is a suicidal quest. Every time. The spirit brings us life. And so those are the choices. And eventually my sermons start to sound the same. Because so many people in scriptures are saying this over and over and over. And so we're going to take communion. And... Uh, communion is, is uh, one of the most important things that we do in our communion service. You guys can go ahead and take the elements and spread it out around the room if you'd like. Um, communion is where we remind ourselves that life is not about the physical. That eventually God interrupted all of this and proved to us that living by the Spirit of God and living in the path of what God has for you, even if it means giving up life, is the way to live and is the thing that brings about salvation. Jesus was poured out for you so that you could find salvation and reconciliation with God. And, um, and, then, and then he stood up after his resurrection and he said, hey, follow me. And we are to pour ourselves out for the world around us. The opposite of what the world is telling you. The world is, is, is telling you to fill Fill that cup, and, and Jesus is standing there saying, no, you know from watching me that salvation comes by being poured out. And the way God is pouring out his grace upon you, and the way Jesus poured out his blood for you and his life for you, and, and so that you could find life, you need to do the same for those around you. Whether it means daily setting aside time that you would normally spend fulfilling the lust of the flesh, setting aside time and fasting instead, um, whether it means spending time watching a people group that you have maybe had some hate for before and, and pondering how they are made in the image of God and God desperately loves them and how you don't. Um, if it means taking part um, 
in helping a people that you would never think twice about before. And as you, as you exercise the spiritual disciplines in your life that you have been given, they are a gift and they will change you. And so as we're taking communion today, spend some time thinking about the ways um, in which this has affected your life. Um, think about the, the, the terrible mind habits that you have picked up and, and, and talk to God about them. Name them. Just put them out there. Hey, I'm a porn addict. I, I lost all day and, and I'm starting to look at women in this way. Or um, I am uncontent with my life and, and I, I just want everyone else's life. And just say it. Be honest. Talk to God about it. All right? So let's take some time in communion and let's repent. Father, we love you. Thank you for everything you're doing for us. You are good. You are holy. You are offering us life. You've given us life. Too often we don't see it. And wake us up. Let us, to, uh, let us live by the Spirit um, to push back against the flesh so that even our flesh can be fulfilled when we seek the Spirit. But we know that if we chase after the flesh, we will lose both the flesh and the spirit. We love you, Father. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.